What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design, the kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most important thing you have, your time, and we never want to waste it here. We always try to do what we do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to some information that actually matters, skip all the caterwauling, and do it so we can better understand the times we live in Two really good guests today. Our friend David McGarry is going to be here later on the program. We're going to talk a little, little internet, you know, more people talking about how we do things on the interwebs. Sarah Montabano is back, one of our real old friends since we started doing programs all the way back to the old radio days. Going to talk some more about these rare earth minerals and just the reality of if you're going to have a bright green future, you're going to have to do some really dirty mining somewhere and the debate over where you do it. Want to have a green future in the U.S.? We better figure out a way to do these mine these minerals here. And of course, that starts crossing a lot of streams of a lot of different people with a lot of different ideologies. We'll talk to Sarah Montabano in a little bit. Also, going to touch on the NFL. It's back in season now. We have the first weekend of NFL. You need to understand that it's more than just a sport. It's a huge part of the culture, and it's a massive, massive business. Along with being the most popular TV show on every channel it's on, this is a cultural behemoth. We'll give you some perspective on just how big it is in just a minute. But first, let's start with uh, impeachment. Now, we've been talking about this pretty much since the Republicans took control of the House. It was a foregone conclusion that at some point they were going to impeach President Biden. Why do I say that? Well, because it was obvious to anybody paying attention and because all you had to do was listen to them, uh, especially the raucous caucus, as we call them, the real hardliners, the MAGA folks the Freedom Caucus people, that wing of the party, when they had the speaker fight, if you go back and remember, Kevin McCarthy had to promise these people lots of things in order for him to secure his position. Part of that was at some point they were going to demand to impeach Biden. In fact, some of them have already filed articles. They've demanded it since the election happened. It was a foregone conclusion that at some point the GOP was going to impeach President Biden. So now Kevin McCarthy has come out and announced that he has directed the committees to start an impeachment inquiry. This is really important and really telling in a couple of ways. He's not going to have a floor vote over impeachment that his members have to deal with. Remember, he's got a very thin majority, but he's also got about 18 members that are in districts that Biden won in 2020. So he's got a lot of vulnerable members here. That vote would be hard for them. Not that they wouldn't do it, but it would be hard. So he's going to do this kind of the slow roll process, send it through the committees. This is also the exact way Nancy Pelosi did the first impeachment, by the way. And that was criticized by people like Kevin McCarthy, who said you shouldn't do it this way because it avoids a vote and you can kind of slow roll it. So here we are in this loop now that we all knew would happen when the Democrats impeached uh, President Trump the first time. Now we're going to do it again here. Impeachment once again. And I've been consistent on this, whether it was President Clinton, whether it was President Trump, whether it was President Biden. Impeachment is not a judicial process. It is a political process. It is a process that you use to try to remove someone, in this case, the president of the United States. If you're going to do it, you don't pull the trigger on impeachment unless you got the votes to impeach him. The whole trick to cutting through the noise in Congress 
and getting to what's actually going on is there's a very simple pr principle that anybody that's ever covered Congress, been in Congress, been around Congress will tell you. If you got the votes, you vote. If you don't got the votes, you dance and do something else. But if you got the votes, you vote. I'm not sure Kevin McCarthy had the votes, so he's doing it this way. And even if he did have them, it would have really hampered him in what they're trying to do. Remember, they got to do all this budget battle stuff now, and that's getting messier by the minute. Impeachment activity is going to be a little bit of cover to their base that they're doing something important, going after Joe Biden, going after Hunter Biden, all that stuff that plays really well in those circles without being able to do the stuff they're just supposed to do, like pass the budget, like get through the budget fights, the appropriation fights, all the things that are going to happen over the course of the next few weeks. It's probably going to lead to a government shutdown because a lot of the same people that want impeachment are going to want to have a government shutdown over spending. Now, let's be clear here. It's not that Joe Biden doesn't have corruption. It's not that he doesn't lie. He lied just this week about being a ground zero again. We got 50 years of book on Joe Biden. We know all about how he goes about his politics, and he does some shady stuff. But again, impeachment isn't a trial. A lot of people are going to talk about evidence and stuff. That kind of matters, but not really, because impeachment is you either impeach the president or you don't. And all the history that we have from Clinton to Trump is if you go to impeach a president and you don't have the votes and you miss, people don't look kindly to that. This is going to be an election year now where the GOP House, because the Senate's already kind of washing their hands of this thing, is going to do something they know is going to end in failure. Not only that, they're going to use these trials and these investigations and eventually probably an impeachment proceeding to try to shield the fact that they can't get anything else done, that they can't hold their caucus together, and that this budget fight is going to be very, very ugly going into an election year where it looks like Donald Trump himself is going to be at the top of the ticket. The political angle of this can never be discounted. If you need to impeach a president, you better have the votes first because anything else is going to end up in failure theater. Failure Theater, Congress is special, where they say, look how hard we tried, gosh darn it. They're not going to impeach Biden here. It's not going to go through a Senate that's held by the Democrats. They may not even have the votes in the House, judging by the way McCarthy's conducting himself. So why are they doing it? Well, because Biden's guilty. Okay, fine. Biden's corrupt. Got no problem saying that. But if you ain't got the votes, why are you doing it? Kevin McCarthy has to do it. And he's now in this position where if he doesn't impeach, they're going to probably try to remove him, his own caucus. They're blatantly saying it. Give us the impeachment or we're going to remove you. But Kevin McCarthy's been in Congress for nine terms now. He actually knows a lot about the machinations of Congress. He knows politically that if they do this impeachment, it's going to hurt them at the ballot box. It's probably going to cost them the House along with some other things, along with if Trump's on the ticket, it's going to drag down the ticket in those down-ballot races, along with the fact that this budget and funding fight that we're getting ready to have is probably going to go off the rails based on these exact same people that also want the impeachment. He knows that. He's trying to buy a little bit more time here, but he's really screwed either which way because they're either going to lose the House and he's no longer going to be Speaker, or he doesn't give them the impeachment they want and they'll remove him and he'll no longer be Speaker. Kevin McCarthy became speaker by horse trading and promising a lot of people in his party a lot of things. And now they're coming to collect at the worst possible moment for Kevin McCarthy, the politician and the speaker of the House. And Kevin's now going to have to write a whole lot of checks with his speakership, with his political career that his mouth promised and his GOP raucous caucus fully intend to cash. More heard tell right after this. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, one of our old favorites. All the way back to the radio days, long before I was ever doing Herd Tell, we had her on a time or two. She's moved up in the world. She went from a policy analysis to a policy manager. Did I get that right? A policy manager yeah. at the Alaska Policy mm-hmm. Forum. She's also up with our friends over at the IWF, which we've been joking about. And she is a regional leader for Young Voices, does lots of great work. Sarah Montabano, how are you, my friend? I'm doing quite well. How about you? Uh, great to have you back on the program. All right. You were writing about this over real clear. I, I've been harping on this and some other folks have to look. I come from the transportation world, the background of logistics, supply chains. I'm glad I did that before I did politics because that's a very A to B for C amount of money and D amount of time kind of a thing. There's just no getting around things like supply chains and logistics. I will listen to your green revolution stuff all day. I'm all for new technologies to protect the environment. I'm not against EVs and stuff. I'm also from West Virginia. I know a little bit about mining. I've seen what mining does not only to the ground and the earth, but to the people that actually have to do the digging. Okay, that's kind of ingrained into our Appalachian identity, right? People just do not realize how much rare earth mining is going to be required for this green revolution. The Biden administration has come out with some stuff, or more to the point, is ignoring some stuff. China is starting to dominate the supply chain. Africa has a lot of upheaval right now, and a lot of these rare earth minerals are there. I've been harping on it. Look, whatever you think of the U.S., we're going to do it better, cleaner, and better for the environment ourselves if we get in it. We don't seem to have a lack of will of it. I don't seem to be able to get people to even listen to me about it. You've been writing about it as well. What's the state of play on this? Because this is a massive problem that people just are not talking about enough. It's fantastic that you say all this. None of this is new. Um, We are looking at technologies in the current renewable energy space that are vastly taxing on minerals. Rare earth elements are actually quite common in the earth's crust, but they take really intensive mining processes. So that's damaging to the environment in itself. We have, uh, you know, these these minerals are used in many more, uh, many larger quantities than what uh, a traditional you know, gas power car instead of an electric vehicle. Uh, I, in my article for, in Real Clear, I say, you know, electric vehicle batteries use six times the minerals of conventional cars and those weigh, you know, a thousand pounds. So these cars are getting heavier, they're damaging roads more frequently, as well as uh, just in creating a massive demand for these minerals that are really intensive and they are mined predominantly overseas and their supply chains are dominated by uh, mostly China, but other countries as well. So it is a huge geopolitical problem, not just an energy and environment problem. Let's get specific, though, so folks know we're talking about copper, which everybody knows that one pretty well. They're familiar with that. Um, Copper thieves, if you're out in the country enough, people strip that out. So people know about that one. Cobalt, nickel, lithium, these rare earth minerals, what they really need them for is the batteries, and they need them for the other technology. There's some other technologies, but it's really the batteries. The race in the EV thing is they got to get smaller, more renewable, more reliable batteries that don't weigh 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pounds because it damages the vehicle. This is the, this is the rubber meets the road to beat the pun to death of the EV revolution, especially for things like electric cars, electric trucks, things like that. They've got to figure out a way to get the batteries lighter. They've got to have these raw earth elements. That's the core. Just walk people through those a little bit because you just said it. It's hard to get these, but things like wind turbines, they take up a certain amount of these things. Solar panels take up a certain amount of these things. A car battery takes up an immense amount. Just walk people through what these things actually practically do as far as the consumer side, what they're going to be seeing and what they can look for. Absolutely. The wind turbine and the solar panel are very clearly visible, but what you don't think about necessarily is the battery technologies that are needed to make these energy sources usable because wind and solar, they are intermittent. The sun is not always shining and the wind is not always blowing. And so in order to have grid reliability and, um, you know, not have to shut off electricity at certain times of night or day, 
uh, you need to be able to store this energy. And so that requires some massive battery banks uh, that do need, you know, lithium and graphite and cobalt, all of these things that are difficult to mine that are not highly concentrated in earth's crust. So you have to sift through a lot of dirt and crust in order to get to these minerals. Um, that, that, of course, is a huge part of it. Electric vehicles, too, include a lot of copper. Um, they're, you know, you'll see a car, but you're seeing not the batteries under the hood. That is a huge part of the weight. Uh, and all of these technologies end up being really resource intensive, at least in the current state of technology. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. It's not just the intensity of getting them, it's where they're at. Um, we mentioned Africa a little while ago. There's a lot of upheaval in Africa right now on a couple different fronts. Part of the reason for that is you have countries like Russia and China involved there, Wagner Group before the current mess. They're involved mm -hmm. there, and they're there because of the minerals, not only things like gold and oil that we're used to. They're also trying to get a hammer lock on these rare earth minerals. Supply chains in diverse places that are politically unstable is not a new thing. But the more and more you want to put the economy um, dependent on renewables, the more and more you want to push this stuff, it's going to become more and more of a geopolitical issue. This is going to be, look, people think we're going to switch from oil to this and it solves all the problems. No, you're going to have the exact same problems, just in different places. I don't think we're being honest about what's going to be involved here. It's like, yeah, we'll be undependent from the Middle East. And now we're going to be involved in Africa and Southeast Asia and other places where we get these minerals. Absolutely. It's really scary what we're throwing ourselves into without really thinking hard about it, because these are mined in places. Um, China has really been aggressively financing mining in Africa and South America, too. Um, you know, over the past two years, Chinese companies have sunk 4.5 billion into lithium mining in various African countries. And in some of these places, of course, it's not being done well to U.S. standards of environmental quality and labor quality. I mean, many of these places, it's really unfortunate. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is doing uh, mining and they're doing it with children. They, I mean, these are very young children who are mining these materials that are sometimes hazardous and can be toxic. Uh, so it's really, really scary that we are trading you know, oil and gas, where we currently are knowing where it's coming from, to these dispersed supply chains that are very dominated by China. Uh, you know, Alaska, or Alaska, I'm so used to talking about Alaska. Um, you, you know, the United States doesn't have reliable supply chains. It is more than 50% reliant for many of its uh, critical minerals. And it's completely reliant on graphite and manganese for uh, foreign sources. There's not a single source in the United States. We have to yeah, change that. You want, to, you want to talk about Alaska, though. There is <laughs> there is large deposits of rare earth minerals in places like Alaska. Yes. Um, there's some debate over it because it's not only the land it's on, it's but also the access to it. How do we balance it? Because, look, I again, I'm from West Virginia. I've seen what bad mining can do. I've Look, I got a large patch of land that was clear cut right beside my house. They've just now made it a state park. It took 25 years to get that re rehabilitated. That's not even counting all the strip mines and all the runoffs and the flooding and all that. How do we responsibly do this? Because we need to secure these supply chains like oil. If we have it here, it's better for us to do it ourselves. No matter if you really want to worry about the geopolitical, then we're not going to have child labor in America like the cobalt mines that have been. And we've seen the pictures and some of the exposés. It's just horrendous. Mm -hmm. How do we balance it? How do we bring it back here? Talk about, yeah, this is going to be in some sensitive areas, but we need to have some kind of a balance test of this is starting to become national security kind of stuff, national economic security and use the resources we have in a still responsible and conservation-minded way. I think you get the philosophy of that exactly right. Uh, we are, the United States has done so well with its environment because we do develop responsibly and we think very hard and uh, carefully about which projects should be located where. Uh, that being said, I do think the permitting process for many projects is too long and is often severely disrupted by litigation. An Alaska-focused example, and one that I, I do not take a position on, I think people can have very many good faith opinions about uh, the scientific merits of certain projects, but you know, the Pebble Mine in Alaska, that is a proposed copper mine in the Bristol Bay watershed. It 
a fixture of my childhood was seeing these no on pebbles stickers everywhere and it just recently this year got a final determination it's been in process for almost a decade and i honestly do think it doesn't take that long to figure out if a project is safe for the environment a litigation tends to draw these things out very quickly uh, and if we're going to say no we should say no quickly so that investors have a chance to go look somewhere else uh, it's it doesn't do anyone any good to have this kind of uncertainty Sarah Montalban joining us. To be fair to the Biden administration, they're in a little bit of a tough bind. Let's go back to Alaska again, just because it's a great example. (laughs) They realize that they need these rare earth minerals for things. So they know that, but they're also know they have environmentalist concerns and especially our friends on the left and our progressive friends and our environmental friends. They're not all on the left. They're across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. They know that this is going to be a heavy lift for them, especially in sensitive areas. Look, one of the major finds of rare earth minerals is not held up because of rare earth minerals is because they got to put a road through the forest to get there, right? This kind of yeah. stuff. We've had you on before to talk about, you know, land leasing and those sorts of issues up in Alaska. Is there a way to find a compromise here? Because we can't just say that we're not going to do this because the world's going that direction, whether you like it or not. How do we get some, some, I don't know what the word you want to use here. Consensus is never going to happen. Like you just said, there's some good faith arguments. How do we get a framework to discuss it though? Is like, Hey, there's no version of a green future that doesn't involve a whole lot of dirty mining. So we better control the amount of dirty mining so that we can control the amount of the green future. How do we have that conversation? I think that's a really interesting question. Of course, there won't be consensus. And I do think, you know, people come at this from all sorts of angles. What I do think is true, though, is that we have to confront the fact that forcing these things to happen faster than the technology is ready is going to hasten this kind of environmental destruction. Um, The Biden administration, I'm glad you uh, mentioned it because I got thinking about this because the uh, Inflation Reduction Act's massive subsidies for green, so-called green technologies uh, are pumping up demand for these things, but it also requires many of these materials to be sourced in the United States. So it's putting automakers for EVs in a really difficult position because they're saying, well, you know, I'm having a really hard time sourcing this in the United States. I need to get it overseas, but then I don't qualify for these subsidies. And, you know, it it creates a massive mess when you have federal policy that contradicts itself like this. Uh, So I think, you know, one of the really major components to this is that we need to be looking overseas for partners who can help us do this in better ways, who aren't employing child labor, who aren't, you know, destroying their native environments, as well as looking in the United States. Um, You know, we're never going to get 100% just based geographically on where all of these minerals are located, but we can work to make this uh, less damaging to people. Yeah, the the spastic you have to source it here, but you're not allowed to source it here is not going to be sustainable. They're going to have to work yeah. on that. Sarah Montabana joining us. Not to go back to Alaska again, but it's just a perfect example. That's you know, my expertise. You, you have <laughs> a huge amount of land. You ha- you know, people argue the, the argument for the last 20 years has been over Anwar and the North Slope. People don't understand how big Anwar is. That, that would be in the, you know, upper half of the size states in America if you just took it out by itself. This is a massive area. How do we, because it's, it's almost like talking about the budget or the deficit. The numbers don't mean anything anymore, right? Mm-hmm. The size of the land just goes over people's heads. People that, on, I'm, I'm not talking about the bad faith actors. I'm talking about the people that care about good environmental policy, good conservation, and good conservation is always good environmental policy. Mm-hmm. People that actually care about that, but do want us to use the land responsibly. Where do they go for this conversation? Because it seems like they get drowned out a lot. I think that's where most people land when they're honest about it, though. Is that what you find when you discuss this and when you're out talking about it? 
I do. I find that everyone in general is sincere about what they say. I don't think anyone wakes up today and says, I want to do what's evil for the environment. Um, I think, you know, we talk about environmental issues like the because they are big. They're big problems. And so too many people assume that only a big government can solve them. Uh, what we need to be thinking about is the way that private individuals can uh, end up creating environmental solutions to smaller problems. You're not going to always save, you know, the planet and, you know, stop climate change, but you might be able to, you know, organize trash pickups on your local beaches or things like that. Um, and so thinking about the ways that we can harness market forces and uh, harness the ingenuity of individuals and technology are really, I think, the way forward. Yep, Sarah Montabano. I got to give you some praise, though. You finally made the Wall Street Journal here recently. Uh, so you've done good work on that. Give people a couple things, because I don't think environmental concerns is going to be real high on the election slate for the next year or so. But I think there's some things underlying that that we're going to be hearing, especially, you know, this session of Congress is going to be really consensus. We're probably looking at a government shutdown. Give folks one or two things on these items that you're watching on that we're talking about, the rare earth minerals, the EVs, the green revolution, these things. What's a couple headlines they should be picking out of the news coverage and maybe flagging when they go, oh, wait a minute, we were talking about that. I need to pay attention to that because I think it's going to get a lot of drive-by coverage without getting into the depths of it, especially in an election year and with a contentious legislative cycle getting ready to start up. That's fascinating that you asked because a lot of these issues are not well covered in the news. And I think the way that you see them covered says a lot. Uh, one of the first one is that the uh, Sackett decision and the SCOTUS uh, has finally been, you know, put into regulations. It's pushed back a lot of these overstretching on uh, what qualifies as a wetland and where the waters of the United States actually are. Uh, so I think that's been a good thing, but you'll see it in the the news, perhaps on your phone, it'll pop up and it says, you know, the EPA strips federal protections of, you know, millions of acres of wetlands. Um, so just being critical about the news coverage. The second thing is that a lot of these decisions are made by these executive branch agencies and they're not being discussed in the legislature. They're too busy, you know, putting things into big omnibuses uh, for us to pay attention. Uh, but one of the things I've followed recently is the National Environmental Protection Act, which uh, uh, controls how agencies have to evaluate various projects that might have an impact on the environment. Uh, there have been some substantial revisions made to that recently to include, you know, kind of very explicit uh, mention of climate change as well as environmental justice. Uh, so we're looking at that for uh, proposed comments. Those are still open. Uh, but, you know, a lot of this work is messy and it's not as fun as being, you know, on the left and saving the planet and, you know, just feeling righteous about it. But there are concrete ways we can make our environment better and, uh, you know, monitor the situation well. Yeah, none of which involves sitting in the road. Don't do that. Uh, nope. Sarah Montabano, you're a, you're a regional leader now in Young Voices. So if you're interested in Young Voices, she's one of those folks you go talk to about it. Uh, let folks know what you've got going on, what you're doing, how they can follow you until we get you back on the program again, my friend. Yes, I would love if you would follow me on Twitter at Sarah Montalbano and the O is a zero. Uh, I would love to chat with anyone, especially from Western states who really understand these issues about joining Young Voices, where I'm a Northwest regional leader, as well as uh, go check out Alaska Policy Forum. We do very interesting things for the state of Alaska. Um, you know, we try to follow these topics pretty well. Thank you. Yep. Sarah Montabano, we're going to link to all this. We're going to link to that piece in Real Clear World. Uh, make sure you go and read that. It's got a lot of links in it also. Make sure you read the links. Always appreciate you, my friend. You're one of the earliest interviews I ever did. I think you were on the second radio show I ever did years ago. Wow. So we'll yeah, we're getting old, aren't we, for young boys. <laughs> uh, appreciate your time. We'll keep having you back. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, ma'am.
Oh, welcome back to Hertel. I just want to talk about the NFL for a minute because the NFL season has really started now. And I've talked about it on this program before. We've had people on to talk about it. The NFL is bigger than a sport. It is the biggest sport by revenue, money collected on the planet. Now, things like you know, soccer, football overseas has more fans and is more global. The World Cup's the biggest single sporting event on the planet. But the NFL is a monster. It's bigger than sports. It's a cultural phenomenon. It is the most popular television show on every channel that carries an NFL game. And now the streaming companies are fighting over it. Amazon has Thursday night football now. Um, the prime ticket uh package the sunday ticket that's now on youtube it's going to continue to expand and evolve because the nfl has been very revolutionary in keeping up with the times but they understand first and foremost they are a tv show and a tv product the revenue they garner is ridiculous as big as and i love soccer i watch english premier league almost every weekend uh watch a lot of bundesliga i lived in germany so i have an affinity for frankfurt Um, because that's the first big-time soccer game I went to over there. In fact, the NFL is playing a game in um, what was formerly known as the Commerce Bank Arena in Frankfurt this year. I'm actually looking forward to seeing that. That is an insane atmosphere. But think about the revenue the NFL collects. The NFL has bigger revenue than the NBA and the NHL combined. It has more revenue than the top five European soccer leagues combined. It's not close. The NFL is a behemoth. And the thing that has really supercharged it, social media, fantasy football, and now legalized gambling, it's going to be more and more ingrained into society. The demographics have changed too now, by the way, as as loud as the meatheads on social media can be. The NFL is right about 50-50 men and women fans now. The NFL is growing it's not going anywhere. And with things like gambling integrating into it, now people watch games that aren't competitive, aren't particularly interested because of the gambling lines. And you can't beat the drama. Um, the absolutely horrible to watch thing, Monday Night Football, the biggest storyline in the NFL this year, Aaron Rodgers moving the Jets, plays four plays and gets hurt. You can't make up drama like that. Uh, I'm looking forward to the season. I've been more into sports this year than I have in a long time. I'm enjoying the escapism, but here's what I've done. I've pretty much stopped watching pregame shows, halftime shows, talking head shows, debate shows. I've cut out almost all the fans and almost all the sports talk, and I come to find I can actually enjoy the games again. I don't play fantasy and I don't gamble. You do that, that's fine. That's you. Be responsible. But I don't do any of that. I watch the games for escapism. I enjoy them, and then I go about my business. That's how I do it, but I wonder how many other people are doing that because these numbers, the revenue numbers – the ratings, the football ratings for college football this year are already through the roof. People just got to understand the NFL and American football, it's bigger than just a sport now. It is a phenomenon. It is a part of our culture. And that's why we cover it from time to time here on Tell. Enjoy the football season. I know I am. First weekend of NFL was great. College is already pretty good. We'll see how my beloved Mountaineers do against Pitt this week. More Hertel right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. 
And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, good friend. Glad to have him back on the program. He hails from the People's Republic of California, but he's out on the East Coast these days in our lovely nation's capital area. David McGarry, great to have you back, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, he's writing all over the place. Clue, finally got him in Ordinary Times writing about opera, of all things. Uh, but you can read him all sorts of places, Reason, Tech, Dirt, Real Clear Policy. He's built up a nice thing for himself. Let's start right there, though. You've been talking about social media. We've had some recent headlines about social media. The stories are not new, but the particulars are new. You know, big tech is big tech censoring speech. Do we have free speech? Man, we've been hashing this out for years now. Why can't we still talk about it in a productive manner? So the dysfunctions that we're seeing in our conversations about um, social media, I think, are an outgrowth of the dysfunctions that we see in the larger conversations about our culture and politics. Um, both sides have decided that every every single political argument or or policy question is some kind of a, a it has some kind of some kind of long-lasting um, implications, which oftentimes they do, but oftentimes they don't. And when we blow up these sort of everyday policy questions into something apocalyptic that does something really unhealthy to the way that our brains work in the way that we view these things. Yeah. How much is fear a factor in this? Because we see how like Biden administration asked Facebook to do this or Twitter to take this down or to say Trump administration went to Facebook about this and so on. So whoever the next president after Biden's going to be, we're going to see this story again. And the next one after that, we're probably going to see it again. People's political fears get in there. People's ideology fears get in there. And even though everybody's on social media now or just about everybody, most people still don't really define what it is. Like we can't define what the First Amendment is as it applies to social media. Just talking about the general population, not the policy nerds. Do we need to go back and do some education? Because usually fear comes out of ignorance or fear comes out of not knowing something. I've talked to people about this before. Do we need to just go back and have a conversation about, okay, here's what the First Amendment is. Here's what free speech means. Here's what that little checkbox you click when you go on social media means. And then this is what social media is. It seems like we skipped some building blocks and now we're trying to do policy based on everybody's emotions. Yeah, so I think a lot of our our difficulties are coming out of the radically uh, new technology technologies that, that the internet has presented. So never before has so much speech and so much social interaction hinged on these uh, gatekeeper platforms. Um, and we have to separate out a few issues here because you have uh, the First Amendment as a legal proposition. And then as in addition to that, we also need a culture that promotes free speech. Um, and that really gets to the heart of the problem with with our current discussions about about social media content regulation, because unfortunately, um, the, the status quo is that the federal government has been coordinating with social media companies to either disfavor or um, suppress or downrank content that these um, that uh, the federal government or these social media platforms don't approve of. Um, we saw a lot of this in with COVID around around vaccines and other issues. Um, we saw some of this stuff around um, election, um, a, a certain election theories uh, surrounding the 2020 election and onward. Um, and Again, separating out this legal from cultural um, free speech, or I should say the, the, this issue of legal free speech versus cultural free speech, um, it's, entire, it's entirely probable that while these kinds of coordinations are very offensive and paternalistic and run counter to what America should be, 
because they're these these coordinations are consensual, many of them don't actually violate the First Amendment according to current case law. Dave McGurry, Dave, see, I can't talk. David McGarry joining us. Here's the thing about this: is let's take an issue that's maybe coming down the road, like when Social Security really does get bad. Everybody knows intuitively at some point that's going to get ugly, and it's going to be a very ugly fight in Congress. So when we talk about misinformation, when you get to an issue like that and that starts going crazy on Facebook, which started out for college students, but has evolved and it's dominated by the older generations now, that's one of their primary social media platforms. So when you get an issue like when we start talking about Social Security and when we get into that, that platform is going to be hot and heavy with folks that are very interested in that issue. You're never going to be able to regulate misinformation, but you're going to have a very important policy debate with a whole lot of really scared people that have a really loud platform that's going to have a whole lot of bad news and bad information on it. It's inevitable. But what's the proper role of regulation in that form? Because you can't just regulate every bad thing. You can't. We saw it in the Trump indictment. You have a right to lie. That's covered under the First Amendment. You can't defraud. You can't conspire. But you can lie. How are we going to deal with misinformation when it comes to something like that? It is a jungle out there. And do we just try to educate the population more? Because the more you regulate it, the more it's going to get worse the way I feel about it. I entirely agree. Um, and just to start off with, we have to recognize that uh, social media platforms have a First Amendment right to control the speech that is put on them. Now, with that said, I, just because they can moderate away any viewpoints that they disagree with does not mean that they should, and they certainly should not. And right now we're actually seeing the effects of this kind of paternalistic um, censorship happy viewpoint, because especially, um, I think especially on the, on the, on some parts of the right these days, the, 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 disproportionate and opposite reaction to the the censoring that social media platforms have done has been the promotion of really toxic uh, figures such as RFK. If you look at someone like Carrie Lake and a whole host of these other folks who maybe five, 10 years ago would have been laughed out of any room on any side of the political spectrum, um, we are seeing we're seeing these folks um, create martyr mythologies around themselves and gaining huge amounts of uh, huge amounts of followers from doing so and really turning it into a business model. David McGarry joining us. Here's something too I find interesting is we've talked about generational change. The the Gen Zers, whatever you want to call them, the millennials kind of adapted to social media as it came out. But the Gen Z folks that are getting into their 20s and early 30s now, that's their natural language. Do you think we're going to start seeing that in the policy side and in the political side? Because they don't see tech as the new thing. They see tech as, oh, it's always been this way because of their perception. They've always had it. They've always had smartphones. They've always had Facebook. They've always had Instagram. How much is that generational? Because you're closer to it than I am because I'm a little older than you. I think that's going to start bleeding into the policy a little bit. Is it going to be a good bleed in or a bad bleed in? Do they see censorship as a problem? Do they see keeping the government out of big tech and big tech also protected from big government at the same time? Do they see those issues that way? Because I think in the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see a big shift in a lot of this because it's a native language. It's not a second language anymore. It's not something people just adapted to as they went up. Yeah. So I really think it cuts both ways because you both have the, cohort of the younger generations who sort of see this as um, just an extension of the quote unquote real world, um, which really, really can be harmed by regulatory intervention. And then you also have other young people because they see this as um, a pervasive part of their lives or maybe even a primary part of their lives. Um, they blame all their problems on on social media and on other um internet-based technologies and they think that the, the the way to get themselves out of or the, the way to ameliorate these problems is to call the government in it's the same it's the same logic that we've had from people in previous generations who believe that government is always the answer right if i if i if i think there's an issue okay slap xyz regulation on it and then everything will be perfect and my life will be good but of course i think 
um, you and I, and I would assume most of your audience believes that government intervention rarely achieves um, it rarely achieves the uh, the goals it sets out to achieve, at least in the big picture. Um, and as I said, I think that a lot of Gen Zers um, and I always forget. I think it's Generation Alpha comes after Gen Gen Z. Um, but all of the all these young folks think that if we just have a nanny state that comes in and makes it make the internet perfect for them, that all their problems will go away, which of course isn't exactly how it's going to play out. David McGarry, I think where you're going to see what you're talking about come out is in this election stuff. Of course, we're in an election cycle right now. Not just election misinformation, which people are really harping on, and they should. It's an important issue. I I think election integrity is a very important thing to hash out. I just mean perception-wise. You're seeing it now in campaigns. You're seeing it now in political candidates. They folks think their little corner of the online world and the fact that you can a la carte your information intake, you can you can get all your news exactly how you want it to be. Now, you have that power in the palm of your hand with your phone. I think you're seeing this in campaigns that are missing the mark on what they're aiming for, for their own audiences. I think you're going to see this in elections when you have a national election and people are like, well, how in the world did that guy win? Nobody I, I follow on Facebook voted for him. It's going to be the old spin on the old verbiage. Right. I think you're going to see this in an election where people are just really shocked that maybe their corners of the world aren't as big as they thought it was. And instead of using their social media to expand their world, they kind of silo down into their little groups and they're going to be shocked at how some of these elections come out. I think that's where some of this rancor and some of the pushback and some of that fear we were talking about, I think that's where it comes from. They just don't realize it until you have a national election where the 20% that are on Twitter, a lot more people than that vote. And they're like, well, how did this happen? Because they didn't inform themselves. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. The internet is a very big place. And so the bubbles that we create for ourselves, or as you put it, the corners that we stake out for ourselves, um, they, they may be sort of, in terms of absolute number of people, much larger than whatever subcultures were formed pre-internet. But, but again, the internet is so big that, that these little spaces that we inhabit are, um, are, are pretty small comparatively or compared, compared to the whole. So it's very easy to think um, I'm me and a million of my closest friends all agree on X, Y, or Z issue, and then forget that that's actually still just a tiny, tiny sliver of what's actually going on in the world. Yeah, David McGarry, I want to switch gears for a second. I want to talk about something you wrote over on your Substack, the Fourth Amendment. Of course, everybody knows search and seizure, probable cause, all those sorts of good things that are very important in law. However, this has turned into something that's it's kind of like industrial law and regulation in some ways. Folks are still trying to apply the Fourth Amendment as written before to the new technologies and the new internet and the new intellectual property kind of stuff and your online rights and even down to things like digital identity. Is that your real identity? The Fourth Amendment is really taking a beating in the discourse. You know, it's almost like the First Amendment we talked about. A lot of people just don't really understand what it really was to start with. And now it's gotten even more complicated and folks are just lost. Reset folks for folks, the Fourth Amendment, especially as you're looking at Congress is trying to use it for certain things. We're talking about the Bill of Rights. Just kind of reset it in its proper place for folks. Yeah. So this is very analogous to our conversations about uh, how does the First Amendment apply in a world of uh, gatekeeper social media platforms? Um, So. Our our electronic devices, from our phones to if any of us have smart toasters or smart thermostats, our laptops, our the applications we use, uh, the accounts we create online, all of these things generate massive amounts of personal data, um, uh, often location data, which is then packaged and sold off by data brokers. Now, a lot of companies will buy this for advertising purposes, but also the federal government will buy this data. Uh, for its own purposes. So, for example, during COVID, you had the CDC, uh, which bought a huge amount of this 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 private market data. It's called 
to monitor compliance with COVID restrictions. Um, we've also had um, law enforcement and um, uh, immigration immigration folks buy this sort of data. Um, and while it while this data is supposedly anonymous, it's very easy to track down who um, who owned or who generated it. So, for example, the New York Times did a really wonderful report where they bought some of this some of this data, and by tracking a uh, a cell phone that they traced down to a Secret Service member of President Trump's entourage, they were able to track the president's movements very, very closely. And again, this all has to do with, okay, you have one, you have this phone, right? You don't know whose phone it is. So you um, you take the phone identi identity and you see where it spends all of its nights. Okay, so then you take that address where this phone is, is spending every night and you check uh, publicly available data about ownership. Okay, now you have a name. Now you know whose phone this is, or or maybe you can narrow that down further if multiple multiple people live at the uh, location. So this is all uh, all some background to actually get to your question, which is how does the Fourth Amendment amendment apply to this? Right, in a world where we are all contractually and voluntarily giving up very personal information that can uh, help law enforcement infer very very. Uh, personal information, or I should say very, very intimate details of our lives. Where does the right to be secure from search and seizures fall in that? And the case that I make um, in my Substack post, which you referenced, which was building off of an op-ed that I published in The Hill recently, is that the Fourth Amendment is just a partial, um, a partial means by which to protect a larger general right to privacy and that now that we've entered a new technological age we need congress to supplement the existing constitutional per, uh, uh, protections of our of our basic rights with further legisl legislation that further bolsters these protections and actually can keep us safe um in in a new world with new technologies yeah david mcgarry i cannot say your name today what is wrong david mcgarry joining us here's the thing you mentioned it in your piece you know Obviously, the framers of the Constitution could not foresee an iPhone and the digital age we live in. But people are saying, well, they don't have any business looking at this at all. No, they do. And you brought it up in this way that we do have a government function here because this staggered me. I'd never seen it laid out. The sheer amount of digital data that the economy is not only creating but exponentially grow. I don't know what these numbers mean. What this is like a 13 digit number, man. You're talking about 33 trillion gigabytes that jumped to 2.5 quadrillion bytes. Is that even a thing? 463 extra bytes every day. You put in here that a gigabyte is the size of the earth and extra bytes, the size of the sun. You can fit another 1.3 million earths in the sun. This is not information that I can even process <laughs> But this is what this digital economy is doing right now. It's we're off the map on what is going on in the economy when it comes to data. Obviously, government's going to have to reform and reshape somehow how it not only oversees, but regulates and looks at this stuff. Where do you even start when you're putting down numbers that you have to explain the nomenclature just to explain how big the number is? Yeah, so um, a lot of folks are talking about comprehensive uh, data privacy bills, which uh, at least last Congress got pretty far before uh, sort of uh, sputtering out. And and that that kind of thing um, presents a whole host of problems of balancing uh, regulatory costs with protecting people's uh, privacy. So that that's one that's one um, one important avenue. But also, I'll say, uh, sort of just from a larger perspective, um, we are in the very beginnings of what I sort of think of as a digital industrial revolution. And if you go back and you look at the 19th century, especially, there were a whole host of social upheavals and problems that were generated by new technology. It radically reformed society. Obviously, in many ways, it gave rise to... Um, to the strains of thought that include uh, Marxism. And I, I really think the, I, I shouldn't say the, but one of the primary things that we have to push for, both from a political, but also from a cultural perspective, is ensuring that this new digital industrial revolution doesn't lead to the rise of ideologies that are as toxic and as destructive as those that came out of 
the industrial revolution. Um, and a lot of that, I think, means um, looking for ways that we can apply previous law um, and apply previous principles to these new situations, augmenting existing statute when it when it needs it, um, and also just simply not panicking because there's a there's a very strong tendency um, in society, but also unfortunately among lawmakers, you'll see this in in certain members of Congress and definitely folks in the media of freaking out over just the fact that things are changing and then advocating shutdowns of X, Y, or Z technology or effective shutdowns of X, Y, or Z technology um, until we can figure out what's going on or whatever. But of course, that only serves to, to put America behind on all of, on all of these technologies and really um, would negate the, the immense benefits and the immense goods that these, uh, that these things can do for us. Yeah, to torture the metaphor a little bit here, this is water world and the water's data. <laughs> like yeah. that's really what we're looking at here. How do we go about this? Because here, here's what's going to start happening. I'm, I'm concerned with when you've got this much data changing hands, this is bigger than we're going to be able to look. We can't even quantify how much there is. That's how much of this data stuff is going on. How do we start talking about it in a way that people can understand it? Because people understand, you know, I think most folks know how a thumb drive works now, something like that, you know, 16 gigs, 32 gigs, 120 gigs, whatever. How do we even discuss this? Because now we're talking about life altering, technology evolution altering policy on things we honestly do not understand. And most normal folks, and I guarantee you most lawmakers also do not understand. That means the experts are going, and I'm doing air quotes, are gonna come in and tell them how to write these laws. How do we educate people on something that's this deep of like, hey, you're not gonna know all this, but you need to flag it so when it shows up in a little soundbite or in a hearing or in a headline, this is what they're talking about, this massive amount of data that we don't even know how to quantify really. Well, I think you did, you did a great job right there, which is just say, this is too big for you to comprehend, right? And that just as a starting place can, can, um, can help us move in the right direction. Because for example, there's lots of tools that have been developed, especially in the last few years by tech, tech companies to help, us, uh, to help us safeguard our data. So for example, you can use a VPN, a virtual private network. Um, Apple's been really good on a lot of this stuff. Um, a couple of years, they debuted this tool that basically limits the ways that apps can track your data. Um, uh, and when the iPhone put the, or when, when the iPhone uh, uh, updated their phones with this feature, it cost uh, Facebook huge amounts of data. It was, it was a, I, I'm, I'm, the, the, the exact number is escaping me at the moment, but they dealt huge financial losses to Facebook's uh, data and advertising markets um, because again, they instituted this privacy, uh, this privacy feature. And on the lawmaking fronts, there's a bill right now that, that I've written about called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act, which stops the federal government from just purchasing uh, people's data willy-nilly in in most cases um and so as i said just starting with with what you said which is that this is so incomprehensibly large of a problem and large of an issue once we realize that we can um we can move into common sense attainable understandable solutions that will at least mitigate the problem for now and we'll see if we need more legislation or more privacy tools etc in the future yeah, David McGarry, this goes back to where we actually started with fear, though. This is going to scare folks when they start trying to look at it. A lot of folks are because when you don't understand something it concerns you and you get worried. How do we tie these things together? Because now you've got a thing where folks are unsettled on their social media, but they're going to use their social media to litigate this other bigger problem that they don't understand either. We have this minutiae, you know, mamushka doll of not understanding things, and we're using the very technology we don't understand to discuss it. So give folks something. What's a couple guardrails for people as they're using their social media, as they try to watch the headlines for these sort of, give us some guardrails here. What should we be looking out for the red flags of, oh, this is government stepping in too far and getting into people's rights and into the company's rights. And where's the other side of that guardrail of, okay, these companies are getting a little out of hand. The government should probably rein them in a little bit. Cause that's really going to be the means test for a lot of this. And then just trying to keep it between the rails. 
Yeah, so just quickly, I'll note that I think a lot of what the government should be doing is not regulating companies' behavior, but regulating its own behavior. Um, as I said, social media platforms have every right to moderate their content, even if they shouldn't, um, but the government does not. Um, in terms of navigating social media, though, I would I would encourage everyone to just develop a very good nose for people who seem like they're fudging the facts. Um, because a lot of times the way that these things, these panics start is not necessarily somebody outright lying. It's someone telling 25, 50%, maybe even 75% of the truth, and then distorting that in a way that that leads to a completely crazy or erroneous conclusion. Um, and I think you also hit the nail on the head um, with with your with your nesting doll metaphor because we live in a very big, dangerous world, and it's more it's larger and more dangerous than it's ever been before. I mean, there there's we have globalized uh, uh, globalized trade supply chains. Um, we have, I mean, as we've seen with with conflicts either in Taiwan or, con or incipient conflicts in Taiwan or the war in Ukraine, there's there's really no such thing as a is a regional conflict anymore. Or there, I should say, many regional conflicts are now now have global impl implications, um, and we live in a world with nukes. And all of all of this is a is a um, really vast, unexplored territory for for humanity as a species. Um, and the more that we can look for voices that seem thoughtful um, rather than um, targeted to get your your dollars or targeted to get your 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 outrage up or or whatnot i think the better off that we all will be yeah david mcgarry that's a good place and a good way to leave it this is complicated we're going to keep talking about it we're going to link to all those pieces we referred to that he's been writing and working on also his Substack. let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you my friend until we get you back on and maybe next time i'll let you talk a little love him on top of all the rest of it <laughs> i would absolutely love to so the easiest place to find me is on my twitter account at david b mcgarry um and then also you have my Substack, as you mentioned which is called the thoughtful spot um and yeah, I, I look forward to, to coming on whenever uh, whenever you want to have me back. Yep, we'll definitely have you back. You do good work writing. Everybody go follow his stuff. We'll link to it on the Substack notes and on the page. David McGarry, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And that'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the Twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you 
anything more than a click. Herdtel.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media, Herdtel Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fires, my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X, but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.